Good morning, FCF Church. Good to see you guys back again this Sunday. If you're here with us for the first time, we are so glad that you are here joining us because we are continuing in our series, like Kim said, called Inside Out. And if you haven't been here with us for the entire series or you missed a week, I encourage you to go back and get caught up on it because it's been a good series so far. And I want to refer back to the first week of the series. If you were here for that, that was five weeks ago. And Randy opened up the series by telling a story about a couple who were taking a walk on their property, a property that they'd lived on for a number of years, a walk that they'd done a number of times, and they were passing by a place that they passed by a number of times before. But this time they noticed something they'd never noticed before, which was a rusty tin can. And they, for whatever reason, decided to walk over and investigate out of curiosity this tin can for some reason. But what they discovered inside of it was a bunch of gold coins that ended up being worth just millions and millions and millions of dollars. And what's so interesting about it is that here they'd been living for years and years and years and years, and they were millionaires. For years, they'd been millionaires. For years, they'd been sitting on millions, but they'd been living as middle-income earners. And the suggestion was that we all have this tendency to see the person in the mirror day in and day out. And it's just like that tin can. We just kind of walk past and we don't pay much attention, and we don't really notice the true value. And what we've been talking about through this series is that in Scripture, in this collection of ancient books, we encounter this God who sees so much more inside of us, this God who sees beyond the outside, who sees beyond the tin can, and sees what's inside, and sees the gold, and sees our true worth, our true value, our true potential, and sees so much more than we tend to see day in and day out, that there's this identity that all of us were created with that we just tend to walk past. We don't even see it. We don't even notice it. And some people live their entire lives without even noticing it. And our goal in this series, our desire, is that all of us would be allowed to, would be able to discover the potential that's inside, even if we'd never noticed it before. So the way I want to start out this morning is I want us to take a look at who we see ourselves at, how we see ourselves. And I want to suggest a couple lenses through which we tend to see ourselves. So I'm going to give three categories, and I think a lot of us in here can identify with at least one of these categories uh, that is just kind of the, the lens that we typically see ourselves through. And the first one is busy. And probably 95% of us would see ourselves as Busy, we just have a lot of obligations. We have a lot of people expecting things from us. We have a lot of things we have to do. We're taking classes or we're working jobs. We have families to care for, homes to take care of, um, parents to look in on, just, just lots of things demanding our time and attention. And if we would define, ourselves, define our lives as anything, it would be busy. It's the first answer that we give when somebody asks, how's it going? It's busy. It's always busy. And the, res- the way that we... Um, respond to any kind of change, if you're busy, and that's the lens through which you tend to see yourself, the way that we tend to respond to change is, please don't ask me to do anything else because I'm probably doing too much 
already. And that's busy. And I won't ask you to identify yourselves because you're probably too busy. You're on your phone texting or something. <laughs> the other lens is those of us who are just, we're comfortable. We're comfortable. We, have, we had this vision for our lives. We had this vision for who we wanted to become and who we wanted to be. And we're kind of there. Or we're on like a really good path to get there. You know, we, we, we have the job that we wanted to have. We're in the position that we wanted to have. Financially, we're right on track. We're living in the house that we wanted to live in and the neighborhood that we wanted to be in. And everything's good. You're the person that the rest of us look at and just want to gag because it's like you just have it all together. Like you set out to accomplish it and you did it. And you're just comfortable. And the way that we respond to change when we're comfortable, is please don't ask me to do anything that's going to disrupt my carefully curated life. Like, I've spent so much time and so much effort getting it just where I want it. Please, please, please don't mess this up for me. And I won't ask you to identify yourselves because you're comfortable. You don't want to raise your hand. And then there are, there are those of us who just see ourselves as inconsequential. You know, we... We might have had this plan for our lives, this vision for our lives, this person we wanted to become, but it just didn't happen. It just didn't work out. Or maybe it's just your whole life. You just, just hope that somehow something would work out. Somehow like everything was going to get together, come together and everything was just going to work. And you looked at the comfortable people and you just thought, maybe that'll be me one day, but it never panned out. And maybe it was just a series of circumstances or events or disappointments or failures or mistakes that happened. But somehow, somewhere, you just kind of landed in this place and it's like, you just feel like there's, you're not the kind of person who's going to make an impact. You're not the kind of person who's going to make a difference. And your response, if you see yourself this way, to, to any kind of suggested change is, why would I change? Because it's really not going to make a difference anyway. Now, to be absolutely honest and transparent, I tend to see myself at times to some degree through all of these lenses. So if you can identify with any of, the, any of these identities here, I want to say that this message is for you, but it's not just for you, it's for us. And what I want us to recognize this morning is that if this is how you tend to see yourself, this will eventually become your ceiling. If you chronically see yourself as busy or comfortable or inconsequential, the result is going to be that that is going to become your ceiling and it's going to contain you right where you are. Because if you're busy, you're not going to change busy. If you're busy, you're not going to add anything else. If you're busy, you're, not, you're, just, you're just busy. And if, you, if you're so busy that you don't have time to change or add things or undo things, you're just going to stay that way. You're just going to stay on that course. Or if you're comfortable, you're too comfortable to do anything different or do anything more or do anything in addition or undo anything, you're just always going to stay there. If you just see yourself as inconsequential, why would you even bother to do anything different? And the result of chronically seeing ourselves through these lenses is that we just get locked into doing the same thing we've always done and getting the same outcome. And the result, whether we intend for it to be or not, the, the natural consequence of chronically seeing ourselves through these lenses, the result is that we just become servants of the status quo. We become locked in to the norms, locked in to the status quo. We become servants of just what's 
generally been going on, the patterns and habits and, and lifestyle that we've created for ourselves. And we stay there. Here's what we have to recognize about this. Is that none of us set out to do this. None of us dreamed up this plan to become a servant of the status quo. None of us dreamed up this plan to get stuck in life. None of us dreamed up this plan just to become mediocre and settle in there. It's just what happens. And there, there are mountains and mountains of research and studies that show that this is just the general natural drift of life, that all people tend towards the status quo. All people tend towards establishing patterns and routines and then staying in those patterns and routines. And the reason that we do that is because it's safe. It's predictable. Even if we don't like our patterns and routines, we stay there because at least we know what we're going to get. And it minimizes fear. It minimizes anxiety. It minimizes risk. And so there we stay. And here's the interesting result of it. One of the interesting results is that although we tend to stay there, we really don't like it that much. Because research has also shown that, that people that tend to stay just floating along in the status quo, just kind of get stuck there, they lose something. They lose this sense of joy. They lose energy. They lose passion, they lose excitement, they lose just that, that sense of uh, their ability to imagine a different reality, the ability to imagine themselves as, as the actuator of that reality. We just, we just lose that zest for life when we get stuck. And even more insidious is that when we get stuck as servants of the status quo, we miss out on our potential. We miss out on... on fully experiencing the ability to employ the gifts and the talents and the skills and the experiences that we've collected and to develop the new abilities and new talents and new skills and new gifts. We miss out on our potential to actually make an impact in the lives of other people, to produce change, to make an impact. We miss it because our tendency when we look in the mirror is just to see that rusty tin can, just to see that person that person who's busy, that person who's comfortable, that person who's probably not going to make a difference anyway. But that's not what God sees. When God looks at you, he sees the potential that he planted in you. And I know, I believe that for every single person in here, and I don't care what your background is or where you've come from or the scars or the baggage or what season of life you're in or how young you are or how old you are or your race or your gender. I don't care. I know that God isn't finished with you yet. And so we're going to take a look this week, just like we have in the past weeks of this series at a passage in a letter written by a first century Jew named Paul. I know a lot of you are familiar with Paul, but for those who aren't, Paul had started out as someone who was 
persecuting the, the Christian movement. When, when the Jesus movement first got started after Jesus' resurrection, Paul was single-handedly dismantling the, the, the entire church movement. And, and he was on his way to put followers of Jesus in jail when he met the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus invited Paul to follow him and help him and be a part of what he was doing to bring this transformation throughout the world. And Paul joined him. And Paul became one of the greatest Christian leaders that ever lived. And Paul traveled throughout the Roman Empire and planted churches. And didn't just plant churches, but he planted churches that planted churches that planted churches that planted churches to the point that you could barely throw a rock in the Roman Empire and not hit a church that couldn't tie its roots back to the apostle Paul. And if you re read a secular description of the life of Paul, they, they consider him to be the second founder of the Christian movement. That was his impact on early Christianity. And so we're reading this letter from Paul that he's writing to this church that he planted in Corinth. And in this letter, like we've said throughout this series, we find these glimpses. We find these, these snapshots of how Paul saw himself that reveal to us how God sees us. The potential that he sees inside every single one of us. And when we come to the passage today in this letter... What's going on here is Paul is addressing these false teachers that have come into Corinth in his absence. So Paul was there teaching. He was there doing ministry. Then he left to go somewhere else and meet another need. And during his absence, these false teachers came in and they started bullying and um, just being really pushy with the Corinthian people. They were manipulating them. And somehow, someway, they actually won the Corinthian believers over to themselves. And they were discrediting Paul and discrediting his ministry and discrediting his message. And Paul hears about this. So a portion of this letter that he writes, 2 Corinthians, a portion of this letter, he's addressing this issue. Which is really awkward because if you've ever had to defend yourself against accusations, it just makes you sound defensive, right? So Paul's in the middle of trying to defend himself against these accusations and he's pointing to this idea of identity because there's who the false teachers are claiming themselves to be and they're pitting themselves against who Paul has claimed himself to be. And so Paul's addressing this head on and here's what he says. Are they Hebrews? Because that was like one of their claims is like, we're Hebrews. Paul's like, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. And then part of their claim to their, uh, their, their authenticity is that they were Abraham's descendants. Abraham's like, are they Abraham's descendants? That's fine. Guess what? So am I. And then Paul focuses in on this one identity, this one identity that he says distinguishes him, distinguishes him from these false teachers. He zeroes on on this one identity. He's like, you want to know what identity really sets me apart from these people that you've turned to? You know what really sets me apart? You know the identity that's driven me all these years, the identity that brought me to you, the identity that's caused me to, to sacrifice so much for you? You want to know what identity matters so much? This is this. Are they servants of Christ? Are they? The thing that matters most, are they servants of Christ? And we see Paul's insecurity. He says, 
I'm out of my mind to talk like this because he kind of recognizes, like, this is childish that we even have to go to this level, that I have to defend myself to you. So, like, like this is kind of crazy that I have to say this, but I am more. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. Paul's claiming this. This is foundational identity. He's saying, this is who I am. I am a servant of Christ. You see, Paul recognized that our God came into our world. He put on flesh to come and live among us, to show us exactly what he's like. He pulled back the curtains and said, this is who I am. And he proved to us that he was gentle, that he was humble, that he was good. And he cast this vision for this dream that he had for reality where the hungry were fed and the crippled were healed, where those who were excluded were welcomed back into fellowship. This world where there was no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more sickness, pain, or death. And he lived this life as an example to show us this is how I created you to live. Then he died on a cross to prove his goodness, to prove his love, to prove that if he's willing to die for us, he is for us, so that we would trust him. And Paul recognized, not only was he inviting us to trust him, but he was inviting us in to be a part of the work that he's doing to bring transformation into this lost and broken world. And Paul recognized, he's inviting me to be a partaker of what he's doing. He's inviting me to be a a part of this vision to champion this movement of transformation that he's bringing to this world. It's like, I'm a servant of Christ. This is my identity. This is what drives me. This is what sets me apart. And he didn't just say this. He didn't just make this claim and just let it hang there. Paul goes on to validate what makes him a servant of Christ. And this should be really interesting to us because, because I think so many of us have this perception of what it means to be a servant of Christ. And the perception that we develop of what it means to be a servant of Christ is based on what we see other people doing. So we see people who claim to be servants of Christ, we watch their lifestyles and we assume, well, that must be what it means to be a servant of Christ. Or there's the tradition that you were raised in or the kind of church that you were raised in where you were taught, like, this is what it means to be a servant of Christ. And so we have all kinds of perceptions of, of what it truly means to be a servant of Christ. But here, we get to hear it directly from Paul's mouth. Paul says, you want me to authenticate what makes me a servant of Christ? Here you go. Because I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which killed a lot of people. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. He was, he was stoned. They thought to death. They dragged him out sit outside of the city and left him for dead, but he wasn't dead. And he actually went back into the city and started preaching some more. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show 
my weakness. Paul said, I am a servant of Christ. And then he lays down his resume and what he uses to prove his validity aren't his successes. It's not a list of his accomplishments. It's not a list of how many converts he's gained. It's not a list of a decision that he made one time or a prayer that he prayed. It's not a, 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 a reference to his baptism or a decision that he made at youth camp. It, it's not how much he knows about the Bible or what his prayer life looks like. It's not how many serving teams he's on. It's not how many small groups he's a part of. The thing that he points to to authenticate his identity as a servant of Christ is what it's cost him. It's what he's suffered. It's what he's been willing to risk. Because Paul knew what validates his identity as a servant of Christ is what it's cost him. This is what validates his identity. Because what proves our commitment to a person or a cause, what proves our commitment is not what we say, but it's what we're willing to risk for it. That's what we're willing to put on the line for it. That's why when we tell our spouse we love them, we don't just say, I love you. Take my word for it, right? It has to be proved out. It has to be demonstrated. Something has to be put on the line. And Paul knew this. What validates his identity as a servant of Christ is what it cost him. And he knew that his potential, his potential as a servant of Christ to be who God created him to be, to do what God created him to do, is on the other side of what's comfortable. His potential, for his potential to be fully unleashed and fully unlocked, it lay on the other side of what's comfortable, and it's true for you and it's true for me, because our potential, our potential, your potential, my potential, is on the other side of what's comfortable. And as long as we stay in servitude to the status quo, we miss out on our potential. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is more that God wants you to learn. There's further that he wants you to grow. There's impact that he wants you to make. There's change that he wants you to initiate. He looks in you and he sees your potential. He knows what he created you for. He knows who you can become. And if we allow ourselves to settle into the status quo and remain in servitude there. We miss out on it. We miss out. So how do we escape from it? How do we get out of it? What was it that, that had caused Paul to, to have a, such a successful ministry and be willing to risk so much? It starts here. It's catalyzed by trust. Developing that identity as a servant of Christ it's catalyzed by trust. I listened to a pastor tell a story one time of a high school football coach. And it was his first year coaching the team. And the team that he was inheriting was not a good team. It was a losing team. But this high school football, football coach had this vision of taking this organization and turning it around and turning it into a winning team. But he knew that there was going to be significant, significant cost. He knew there was going to, it was going to require sacrifice. And he knew that it being his first year there, anything that he tried to drive them to that was going to be outside of their comfort zone was going to be received with skepticism. They're going to be doubtful. They're going to be resistant. So here's what he did. 
He told them that on the first day of practice, he wanted them to show up at the local pool. The first day of practice, all the athletes come and they line the edge of the pool. And the coach walks up onto the high dive platform and he starts giving them this speech. And in this speech, he paints for them this picture of what he knows they can become, this picture of the victory that he knows that they can accomplish. And he also tells them, but here's the cost. This is where we're gonna go as an organization, but here's the cost. Practice is gonna be intense. You're gonna have to go through a lot of pain. There's gonna be a lot of sacrifice, but in the end, we'll have victory. And he saw this team and he saw their faces and he saw their disbelief and he saw their doubt. And so he walks up to the edge of the high dive and he says to them, pain is temporary, but glory is forever. And he jumps off, splayed out completely and belly flops, bam, right onto the surface of the water. And then he climbs out of the pool and every jaw is dropped and their eyes are wide open. And he goes back up onto the high dive again. And he says, pain is temporary. Glory is forever. Whack. And now he had their attention. Because here's what he had done in that moment. He painted them the picture of what the end game looked like. He painted them the picture of what the cost was going to be. And then he demonstrated for them that he was willing to suffer pain right alongside with them. And in doing that, he earned their trust. He earned their buy-in. And for the rest of the morning, voluntarily, student after student after student walked up onto that high dive and whack, whack, all morning long. Here's the second thing that he accomplished through that. He invited them to step in to their pain. He invited them to not run away from, to not be afraid of, to not hide from, but to confront and walk in to pain. Here's what researchers know. And here's what a lot of us have found out that the things that we're afraid of, the things that we're anxious about, the things that we try to steer away from because we just don't like them, they're uncomfortable, they may make us a little anxious. The more we avoid those things, the more we become afraid of them, the more we feel anxious about them, the more, the more control they exert over us, which seems completely counterintuitive because we tend to think if we avoid the things that we're afraid of, then we won't be afraid because we're not around the things that we're afraid of. But it's the exact opposite that's true, that the more we avoid the things that we're afraid of, the greater our fear becomes. And the more those things have power to exert control over us. And it's the same with pain. And it's the same with discomfort. And it's the same with risk. And what that coach did that morning was he invited them to step into pain so they wouldn't be afraid of avoiding it. They wouldn't walk away from it. They wouldn't be averse to it. He invited them into it so that it wouldn't have control over them. Isn't this what God has done for us? That he came into this world and he painted this picture of this grander reality. And he said, but there's going to be a cost. You are going to have to take up your cross. But he took his up 
first. And then he invites us into it. He invites us into it. And he invites us into it little by little by little. He says, first of all, there's some things that you might have to cut out of your life. There's some things that you're gonna have to sacrifice. And there's some things that you're gonna have to start doing. This is pain confrontation. This is stepping into our pain. This is stepping out of our comfort zone little by little by little so that we learn little by little that we don't have to avoid risk. We don't have to avoid discomfort. We don't have to avoid pain. We can step in to what God is calling us to because it's going to be okay. What is that next step of faith that God's calling you to take that you need to trust him with but you don't really want to do because it's a little bit uncomfortable? What is that for you? And it might be something really small. It might be just carving out a quiet time in the morning. It might be joining a small group. It might be getting on a serving team. It might be cutting that thing out of your life that you know, this isn't okay and I need to stop doing it. And it might be small. I get it, I get it, I get it. And it's like, what difference is this gonna make? But I'm telling you, God can't steer a ship that's not moving, right? You cannot steer something that doesn't have forward motion. Trust gets us off the couch. Trust gets us moving. Until we take that next step of faith, God cannot steer us in the direction that he wants us to go. So becoming a servant of Christ, it's catalyzed by trust. It's directed by need. Trust gets us off the sofa. Trust gets us moving. Need directs us. Thursday and Friday of last week, we hosted the Leadership Summit which was awesome. And for everybody who was there, I hope you had a wonderful time and walked away with a renewed vision for your life and the things that God wants to do through your life. During, that, uh, during the conference, one of the speakers told a story of a study that was done. And when I heard the story of the study that was done, I was very skeptical because it just sounded like one of those things that a pastor made up one time and it just got passed and shared around and everybody just thought it was true because so many people had heard it. And so I looked it up to see if it was actually legit. And it was actually legit. Here is the study. The study was to see what the impact of hurry was on someone's willingness to help someone else. So what they did was they went to a university and they had two sets of students. One set of students, they told, we want you to go to this other building on campus to perform this task. They said, you have plenty of time, but you should go ahead now because you know, it'll take place in like 15 minutes. The other group they told, you have this task to perform at this other building on campus and you're already late, so we need you to get there as soon as possible. Along the way, for all of the students, they would encounter a man who would be slumped in a doorway experiencing um, medical issues. And they would find themselves in this situation and nobody else would be around. So there would be this visible person who actually needed help and they were the only ones around to help them. Not surprising to anyone, the students who thought they were late were far less likely to help than the students who thought they had plenty of time. That wasn't surprising. What was surprising was the rate at which the number of busy students actually slowed down to help. 10%. 10% stopped to help someone who was in visible medical distress when they were the only ones around to do anything. That was surprising to me. What makes it even more interesting is that the university was a seminary and the task that they were asked to perform was deliver a message on the parable 
of the Good Samaritan. Huh. Isn't that great? I think intellectually, we always know what's more important. But what happens is we serve what tends to be more urgent. I think in our busy, hurried lives, it becomes very easy to overlook needs and walk right past them. And here's something that I've discovered to be very true. It's a, it's a quote, and I don't know who made this quote, but I heard it in one of Pastor Kim's messages, so I'll just attribute it to Pastor Kim. Pastor Kim once said <laughs> that hurry is not a state of our schedule. Hurry is a state of our heart. And I found this to be very true in my life, that when I am most hurried and, and negligent to the needs around me, that hurry has nothing to do with my schedule, everything that to do with my heart, because I find that when I'm in that state, what is driving me more than anything else is fear. And it's typically fear of somebody else's expectations. There's somebody who's counting on me. There's somebody who's expecting me to be something or be somewhere or do something or measure up to something. And it's this fear that drives this hurried pace of life. And when there's fear, it's so easy to overlook need. Fear and love have a lot of difficulty coexisting. That's why God says perfect love casts out fear. And I wonder if it's possible that some of us have just become so not schedule-driven, but so fear-driven that we're walking right past the needs that God's placed in our lives, that he's positioned and equipped us specifically to meet. So I think three questions that are good for us to ask ourselves. What are the needs in our lives? What are the needs? We know that there are needs. There are needs everywhere. Needs in your family, needs in your marriage, needs at work, needs at church, needs in your neighborhood. We can look around if we're sensitive to it and see need everywhere. And the second question is, how has God uniquely designed you? How has he uniquely equipped you? How has he uniquely positioned you to meet those needs? You can't meet all the needs. None of us can meet all of the needs. This becomes the filter through which we sift. What needs can I meet? How has God uniquely positioned and equipped me to meet, the, to meet the needs around me? And then to ask yourself, because this is the thing that tends to hold us back, what might have to be carved out of my life for me to meet this need? Where's the fat that I've just allowed to get subsumed into my schedule and into my life that, that might need to be cut out? This might, just, this might just have to be something that I sacrifice so that I can meet this need that God has uniquely equipped and positioned me to meet. What is that for you? I don't expect you to have an answer now, but it's something worth thinking about because here's what I know. This is how God will move you through your life towards your potential. I had a friend who was at an event one time where he happened to encounter Mother Teresa. And while he was there, he was there with his daughter who was going into college. And she was in this place of, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And maybe some of you can identify. And so they had the opportunity to meet Mother Teresa. And here's this person who's just brimming with wisdom. So she asked her, how do I figure out what path my life is supposed to take? 
And I love this. Mother Teresa just put her hand up in front of her face. This old wrinkly hand. And, and the girl just didn't know what to make of it. And, and Mother Teresa said, what's right in front of you? Meet the need that's right in front of you. Just always do that. Make that the, the guiding principle of your life as you trust Christ and follow him fully. Just always be willing to meet the need that he puts right in front of you that he's uniquely positioned and equipped you to meet. And I'll tell you, as I've looked at the people who've been most tremendously used by God at all levels, all walks of life, the thing that I find to be the most common denominator among them, one of the most common denominators, is that throughout their lives, they never sat down and came up with a five, ten-year path to greatness. It was always their willingness to do what was right in front of them. And step by step by step by step, God moved them from need to need to need to need towards their full realization of their potential and his full usefulness of them. It's always meeting the need that's right in front of us. So, catalyzed by trust, that gets us moving, gets us off the sofa, become directed by need that God puts in our path, then lastly, sustained by hope. This is how we maintain. Several times a year, we send out short-term mission teams to serve alongside our international partners. These are smallish teams of anywhere from 10 to about 40 people that go out for about a week's worth of time and they've traveled to places like South Africa and Ghana and Peru and the Dominican Republic and they go and they partner with, our, with, with local churches to help them become more equipped to more effectively help people reach their full redemptive potential in Christ. And these teams go out and they have tasks. And if you've been here, when a team's come back, you've seen the pictures. They have tasks like pouring foundations or moving block or putting up walls or launching kids programs, all kinds of different things that they do. But the thing that you find common when they come back, the thing that they will constantly tell you after a week of being away is, I just didn't feel like we had enough time. Right? I, I just wish we'd had more time. Because these teams, when they go, there's so much work to be done. They know their focus. They know what they're trying to accomplish, but it just never seems like there's enough time. And they pour so much into the work. Well, they work so hard at it. And what you never see, what you never see amongst these teams while they're away on these trips you never see them admiring the people who live there who are rich and have everything going on. They never spend time thinking like, how can I live like those people? How can I get what those people have? You don't find them like taking side vacations to go off and, and, and just travel the country and just live casually and do whatever they want. You don't find them like going out and buying a bunch of stuff to like decorate their hotel room because they want their hotel room to be nicer than the hotel room next to them and so that it can be more comfortable so while they're there, it's just a little... You don't see them doing that. Why? Because they know they have a short amount of time. There's a lot of work to do. And at the end of it, they're going back to their real home. This is Hope. Hope is the sense that we have a mission, that we have a purpose, that we only have a little bit of time to accomplish it, 
before we go to our true home. Hope is meant to drive us. It's meant to sustain us. Hope is what says, don't try to get it all for yourself right now. Don't, don't spend your time trying to amount comfort and trying to keep yourself comfortable and trying to live risk-free. No, it's not about right now because you're not home yet. This isn't it. This is the mission ground. And there's only a little bit of time, but God has tremendous potential for you to produce change, to make an impact, to transform lives. Don't spend it getting comfortable. And you watch these mission teams, and it's not, like, it's not like they drive themselves into the ground most of the time. They take care of themselves. They eat food. They sleep. But all of it is meant to help them and equip them and give them the energy and strength that they need for the mission at hand. And if it distracts them from the mission, they don't do it. This is how we're meant to live. With this, with this recognition that our time is limited, that there's a mission that God has for us. And at the end of it, we're going home. And if something strengthens us for the mission, then we'll do it. But if it distracts us from the mission, we don't need it. We'll cut it out. Are you living this way? Do you have this kind of hope? And I think there are some of us here this morning, some of you, you're on the front lines of ministry you are doing an amazing work from God, but it's getting exhausting and it's beating you down and it's wearing you down. And what you need to hear this morning is that there's hope. God will leave you. I take that back. God will not leave you is what I meant to say. God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. He will energize you through this and he promises you victory. That as you continue to serve him faithfully and meet the needs that he's put in front of you, as you continue to do that, he'll use that. He'll build something amazing out of it, something beautiful out of it, something tremendous out of it and he'll develop something in you. So don't give up, don't grow tired, don't be weary, don't be afraid. God will never leave you, never forsake you. He promises he promises to walk with you through this. Paul was a servant of Christ. And the thing that he pointed to above all else to validate it was his willingness to step outside of what was comfortable because he knew that's where his potential was. It was catalyzed by trust. It was directed by need. It was sustained by hope. As you read Paul's letters, he wrote over half of the New Testament. You just see this over and over again, this trust that's driven by need, that's sustained by hope. It's what drove him. He was a servant of Christ. That was how he saw himself. Is that how you see yourself? Because that's how God sees you. God sees you as his servant, his co-worker, someone meant to be a champion for his cause of transformation in this broken world, to be a voice for those who don't have a voice, to include those who've been marginalized, to reach those who've been lost, to 
provide for those who are in need. God's vision for the church, God's vision for FCF Church is that we would become the expression of the heart of God to our local community, that we would demonstrate his love, his generosity, his mercy, his goodness to our local community. And by God, we're doing that because there's so many of you who've been willing year after year and week after week to step outside of what is comfortable and allow God to use you in tremendous ways, with things that, that may seem small and insignificant at the time, but that God leverages to have tremendous impact. And we see it. We see the impact that God is having through you who are stepping outside what's comfortable. We see relationships being built with homeless communities and, and them coming to an understanding of who God created them to be. We see relationships being built with elementary-aged kids and underserved populations in downtown Frederick. And we see them getting these glimpses of who God created them to be. We see people coming out of addiction and marriages being healed. I also believe that we're only scratching the surface of our potential as a church. And I don't say this to be discouraging because I know that God is using this church in tremendous ways, ways that we don't even always see. But there's still so much need left. There's still so much brokenness. There's still so much hurt. There's still so, much, so many families that are in desperate need of the love and the wisdom of the guidance of Christ in their lives. So many children that are growing up in families where the, the vision that they're giving for life is to attain power and control over other people. So many kids who are growing up through high school who are being pushed to, to keep going and accomplish and, and get better and do more, but they're not giving any sense of purpose or who they are or what their true identity is. And it's all hollow and they're being dragged into addiction. And we're just seeing that wave, wave rise and rise and rise. And girls and women in our area that continue to be abused and manipulated and trafficked happening right here in our communities. You, we, we, we so often project our reality onto reality. You know, so many of us just, I know not all of us, but so many of us just lived in this kind of comfortable, closed off world. And we just project that on the rest of the world around us, but it's not the case. There's so much hurt. There's so much pain. There's so much left for us to do. And God is calling us all out, calling us all to take that next step because as my potential, your potential is on the other side of what's comfortable for us. Will you pray with me, FCF Church? Father, you, you see us right where we are. Some of us have just been just lulled into complacency. We know it, and you know it, and you love us here. You have grace for us here. You have patience for us here. You also have hope 
there's so much more that you have in store for us. So much more that you're inviting every single one of us into. So much more that you don't want us to get to the end of our lives and have missed out on. And you're pleading with us to take whatever step of faith is next for us. That we would experience your best and we would experience our potential released. Father, let your spirit have his way in us as we step out what is comfortable and into the potential that you have for us. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.